needed to do this. And one of the first reasons is that every generation of Christians have had to face this problem. Every generation of Christians has had to deal with the fact that bad ideas make their way into churches, into lives, into, uh, into the Christian faith every single generation. Now, some of these have done it every generation. I mean, they, they seem to be ideas that don't want to die. But they do come. A lot of times they come because of social pressure. A lot of times they come because people get bored. Sometimes they come because we want to be intellectually stimulated, whatever the reason, they do come. But one of the other reasons is that because when they come, or because they come, a lot of times the result is a stolen joy. So Christians begin to believe things, believe some of these bad ideas, and the joy that they are supposed to have in their Christian faith suddenly goes missing. But of course, one of the biggest reasons, if not the biggest reasons, that we need to look at that is because when these bad ideas come along, they alter the gospel. And when they alter the gospel, that means we're going to change our motivation as to why we minister. It's going to change our understanding of ourselves. And it's certainly going to put at risk eternal souls. So this week, I want to talk to you about what is known today as oneness theology. It's been around for about 1,800 years. It's gone by a number of different names. But oneness theology teaches that there is one God, one person. So this one God, one person of the course of human history simply takes on certain roles. So, for example, if you're reading your Bible and you see the, a text about God the Father, that's a point in human history where God goes to his closet and he puts on his God the Father coat. If you're reading your Bible and you get to God the Son, and the idea is that at that point of the Bible, or that point in history, God then goes to his closet and puts on his God the Son coat. Or if you read about God the Holy Spirit, that's the idea that God goes to his closet and puts on his God the Holy Spirit coat. So it's the idea of one God, one person. It's a complete and utter denial of what we declare as the Trinity. That there is one God... In three individual persons. We are a Trinitarian church. And thus we would deem oneness theology a bad idea about Jesus. Now to talk about this bad idea, I come to Ephesians chapter 1. And this is probably terrible of me to say right at the out front. But I am not going to do this passage justice. There are men who have been preaching or have preached for many years. Unfolding what is found here in verses 3 through 14. We're simply going to hit some highlights to make the point we want to make this morning. But if you're not familiar with the book, Ephesians is about the body of Christ. It's about the church. Where did it come from? What's God's intention for it? What should it look like as a living organism? And to open the book, verses 3 through 14 are really a celebration of the birth of the church. It's a celebration song. If you have ever studied the book of Ephesians, you probably already know verses 3 through 14 are actually one big sentence. As if Paul began to celebrate what God has been doing in verse 3, it just could not stop. And all of this celebration is around a triune God. So what I want to show you this morning is why. His celebration, why this glorying of Christ, of God, of the Holy Spirit, is so necessary or dependent on God being a Trinitarian God. So I have three points for you this morning. 
number one. Number one, God chose to save us. If you go to verse 4, you find the phrase, according as he hath chosen us in him. Now, the fact that God has chosen us should not really cause us any real issue. We go back to our Old Testament. The Bible says God chose Abraham. The Bible says God chose Moses. The Bible says God chose Jacob. He chose Joseph. He chose David. Several of the prophets declare themselves as having been chosen by God to deliver a message. So each time we see here, we see God doing the choosing. But then we look at verse 4 and we find some more information. It says, according as he had chosen us in him before the foundation of the world. Now this is, again, not meant to kind of tie us up in knots. The idea is this is that if he chose us before the foundation of the world, it means that God made the decision free of any other reason. It was a free choice by him. If he did it before we existed, it means he did it before we could have done anything to deserve it. We get more information in places like verse 5 and verse 11. We're told in verse 5, for example, that God made the decision out of love. It was not just a spinning wheel of chance, not a cold-hearted selection. It was deeply personal. We see that it was because of his own counsel. If you want to think of it this way, it means that God made the decision only having a conversation with himself. Now again, these are things that are not meant to twist us into theological nuts. It's meant to show us the personal nature of the choice. In these statements are some pretty clear or obvious assumptions about God. So class, is God able or is God free to make his own choices? Yes. Is God free to love whoever he wants? Class? Yes. Is God, does God make perfect decisions? Yes. Does anyone have the right to argue with God about the decisions he makes? No. So you go to verse 13 and it says the Holy Spirit then acts as a seal on that choice. The idea of a down payment so nobody else can have the item. And so we would declare as a church that we believe that the grace of God comes to us by the good news of Jesus Christ. And is applied, it is is brought to us, it is not caused by anything other than the Trinitarian God. Now oneness theology is embraced for one simple reason. The Trinity is hard to understand. As humans, we don't have the ability to kind of get our minds around the idea of something being both one and three. Every illustration we come up with comes up short, whether it's a four-leaf or three-leaf clover or it's the state of water. The problem is, is if we have a God that we can't understand, we can't stand for that. Because if God is not entirely understandable, if we can't get our minds completely around him, that means this is a God we can't control. It means that this is a God we can't manipulate. It means he's a God that we can't just shape into our own image. And the scary reality is that Trinitarian theology makes something very clear that he is God and we are not. And so when this theology comes along, or things like it, And we want to embrace them because it takes away that scary reality. But this text says the choice was made by God 
It involved the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. It was a choice that God made by his own will, for his own purposes, by his own good pleasure, for his own reasons. Now the fact is, if we worship a God that he is going to always remain outside our, our ability to fully understand, it means we're going to come across things about him that are going to be understood only so far. So when we come to the ideas of things like election and predestination and and Trinitarian theology, our curiosity isn't going to always be satisfied because that's not the intention of the word. We're not to avoid them to keep from getting theological headaches. We're not trying to solve them to keep from getting theological headaches. What these things are meant to do is bring us to a place of worship. Think about this. The Trinitarian God, in total freedom, out of an overflowing love, in his infinite wisdom, chose to save you. And the fact should absolutely humble you and set you loose to celebrate. That brings us to number two. God saved you in Christ. God saved you in Christ. Now, this is a phrase you'll find throughout the passage here, verses 3 to 14. The Apostle Paul will use that in Christ or in whom or in the beloved. It's a phrase phrase the Apostle loves. He uses it 169 times in all of his writings. And any time he uses it, he's using it in one of three ways. He uses it all three of them here. One way, when he says or uses the term in Christ, he means radical transformation. You notice in verse 13, in him, that would be in Christ, you were given the Holy Spirit. In 2 Corinthians, the Bible says those who are in Christ are a new creation, will be a new creation. This new creation transformation comes because because of the Holy Spirit, because you are in Christ. Another way in Christ is used here is the relationship dynamic. Verse 9, we are adopted as children of God in Christ. Being adopted, that means we're not only in this new standing with God, but if we're adopted, we have this new standing or dynamic change with each other. Not only is there no longer separation between us and God, there's no longer separation by earthly things between God's people. We're not separated because of gender or ethnicity or class or age. Something has changed. But then the third way that he uses in Christ, we find in verse 3, he says, God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in Christ. The idea of satisfaction. Every spiritual hunger, every spiritual thirst we could possibly have can be satisfied by being in Christ. Now, someone like the Apostle Paul, who is probably the most educated man who ever wrote part of the New Testament, Here's a guy who would have known his Old Testament backwards and forwards, would have known uh, or been able to quote pretty much every major writing on the Old Testament, and consider that he writes this in the shadow of the Old Testament. For example, in the Old Testament, God promises that he will radically change his people by giving them a new heart. And here the Bible says that is accomplished by being in Christ. In the Old Testament, God promises to adopt people from all over the world. And the Bible says he does it. How? By putting them in Christ. In the Old Testament, God promises to give all of his people the spiritual blessings they need. And the Bible says he does that by putting them where? In 
Christ. So instead of a triune God, where each member of the Godhead plays a role, oneness theology says God essentially just took on a different character every step of our salvation. Trinitarian ideas in oneness theology are very, very different. And it doesn't just apply to our salvation, it applies to our Christian life. Consider the uniqueness of Christian joy. If I can put it this way, the world is full of lesser joys, isn't it? Food, work, relationships, nature. However, when we are put in Christ, the Christian is taken up into a greater joy. It is the joy-filled love between the Father and the Son. This love or this joy that the Father and the Son have enjoyed for all of eternity As the Bible says, why Jesus endures the cross for the joy, the joy that God is because of this joy that God raises him from the dead. So your forgiveness, your righteousness, the love that you experience, the joy you have is really a product of being caught in the love and joy between the father and the son. If you catch all that, maybe I'll put it clearly like this. Your eternal security comes from the fact that the father and the son have joy in one another. And because they will always have joy in one another, they will always have joy in you. You don't get that with oneness theology. But also consider the idea of prayer. When the disciples ask Jesus, how should we pray or teach us to pray? The first thing Jesus says to them, pray to the Father. And if you go through your New Testament, we see the apostles everywhere. They will start their prayers, our Heavenly Father or Lord. Jesus then tells them to go ahead and ask anything in his name. And again, the New Testament, we go through it. We see prayers like in Ephesians 5 here, where Paul prays in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then we go to John chapter 14 and 16. And Jesus says to the disciples, the Holy Spirit will come and help you to pray. Where it is further explained in Romans chapter 8, that the Holy Spirit does, in fact, help us to pray. So the simple act of you closing your eyes in prayer is something that is altogether different under oneness theology. The act of prayer for the, for the Christian is something that involves the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. Because you are saved by a triune God, because he put the work in, because you are in Christ, because you are rooted in this eternal joy, you have access to the throne of grace in your time of need. And because you are in Christ, you have the Spirit to help you when you close your eyes to pray. Certainly a reason to celebrate. And that brings us to number three. God saves us with total forgiveness. Come back to verse 7. In whom, that being in Christ, we have redemption through his blood. Now the word redemption gets thrown around a lot. If you're into sports, you'll have a pitcher, for example, who'll have a a really bad game, and then maybe comes along and pitches a great one in a World Series game, and you always hear the announcer say what? Well, that pitcher has done what? They've redeemed themselves. Or you might get one of those true Hollywood stories where you get an actor or an actress who's done some good work, and then they get into drugs, and then... Uh, They ruin their life, and then they get help, and they make a great movie, and one of the reviewers is always going to say, that actor did what? They redeemed themselves. 
But that's not at all what we're talking about here. Note in the the verse there, in whom, being in Christ, we have redemption through his blood. You see that. Redemption here is something that is accomplished by something being paid. One of the favorite images of the Bible writers is that of slavery. You and I are, are pictured as being chained in the slave market of sin. Christ coming along and purchasing us by his blood. That's the redemption we're talking about here. But then note the phrase, redemption by his blood, is followed by these blessings. And the one I want to focus on just this morning is the one listed first. Forgiveness of sins. You've heard me say in my years here over and over again that society, every culture, every ethnicity, every society has recognized there is something wrong with people. So when we turn to our spouse or to our children, we go, what's wrong with you? Every culture has said it. And when there's a recognition that something's wrong with people, then you get all sorts of ideas of how to be rid of the human condition, how to get out of the human condition. How can I be clean? Well, the forgiveness that we have, the forgiveness of sins that we have by the blood of Christ can do what nothing else can do. It can do what positive thinking can't do, or therapy can't do, or hypnosis can't do, or dieting can't do, or self-harm can't do. The forgiveness that we have by the blood of Christ is completely extending. It goes into the conscious sins, our unconscious sins. It goes into our past, our present, and our future, because God knows all things, and the blood of Christ is infinite. Total, complete, absolute. And this presents the biggest problem for oneness theology. You see, if oneness theology is true, then Jesus was just another manifestation of a one God, one person. It means that the cross of Christ is simply a big show so that God can say, no big deal. It completely undercuts the idea of God as a moral authority because it says, well, God God made the rules, we broke the rules, God said we were guilty and then just decided to forgive us and make a big show about it. It makes us no big deal. It means that if he can just put on a show and then look the other way from our sins, it means that he doesn't take us seriously. It means that we don't matter. Now here's what happens when God is removed from moral authority. Here is always the result of oneness theology. Every generation that has embraced it. When you remove God as a moral authority, you create a moral hole. And when you have a hole there, we want to fill it. And typically we fill it with our own little moral codes. We've actually watched this play out in our society. In the 60s and 70s, there was an idea driven. There's no such thing as moral authority, no such thing as moral absolute. Then over the next few decades, Americans began to experiment with all sorts of immorality, legalizing much of it. Well, that created a big, giant moral hole. So now what do you have? Censorship, boycotts, rules that make you either a social hero or a social leper. Or if I can put it this way, we are now in the age of secular militant fundamentalism. No grace, no redemption, no forgiveness. Our mental health facilities are full. 
because we get a stifling community. And it is always what happens when a culture embraces oneness theology. But we have a message that says there is redemption. And that this redemption brings with it a burden-lifting total forgiveness. It comes not from works, but by the blood of Christ. It comes not because God just looked the other way, but because God stared directly into our sin and then sent the second member of the Godhead to put on human flesh, spill his blood, and then took the third member of the Trinity to seal us forever because we are a big deal. So we cannot let ourselves become frustrated by truths that we can't get our minds around and then settle for lesser theology, which is really nothing more than a different gospel. Truths such as the Trinity or predestination or election are not meant to lead us to confusion, but to worship. We have a God, yes, that we can't get our mind entirely around, but that's because he is God and we are not. Theology matters when it comes to the basis of our eternal salvation. Theology matters as to why you can have confidence when you close your eyes to pray. Truth matters, especially in a time when many of uh, many people that we live near do not understand that they can be free from this suffocating, secular, militant fundamentalism. Where you are constantly wondering, what's the rules today? So we can tell people they can be redeemed by the blood of Christ and have this total forgiveness. You see, as I said at the beginning, it matters to talk about these things. Every generation faces these problems. Every generation has these bad ideas about Jesus And they rob us of joy, but most importantly, they take away from us the redemption we can have in Christ. Is that not worth defending? Let's pray. Father, a simple message. Father, a reminder of how you, the Godhead, in your infinite wisdom and in your love, chose to save us and you did so by putting us in christ your son and sealing us by your holy spirit and giving us this total and complete forgiveness so that we can stand in your presence and pray so no matter what's going on in our lives we know we are caught up in the joy between the father and the son and the spirit i thank you for these simple things And how they can carry us through the difficulties of life. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.